Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lovecraft. This is the second time I've tried to record this damn thing. Let's hope this one works. Got to admit, I'm not in the cheery mood I was an hour ago. But, okay, first I want to note that uh, Dennis Weiler at Fedogan and Bremer has set up a three-book bargain package of the uh, Innsmouth books that published the three anthologies. Uh, won't last long. I'm not absolutely sure when I got this, so it might even be over, but why don't you check it out at Fedogan and Bremer. James Ball in the UK asks, I recently rewatched 2001 A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Although the film's narrative of the ascension of man to a higher level of cosmic existence is somewhat opposed to Lovecraft's less optimistic vision of humanity's place in the universe, I still find that the film has a distinctly Lovecraftian atmosphere at some points. The haunting choir music in particular puts me in mind of cosmic horror and the cold, unknowable recesses of space. To what extent do you feel 2001 is a Lovecraftian film? And do any particular pieces of music or sound evoke sensations of cosmic horror in your mind? Don't remember the music well enough, but my general impression is that it certainly is cosmic and puts one in a Lovecraftian mood, uh, creating, evoking a sense of... Uh, the being on a tiny uh, island of insignificance in a vast ocean abyss of space and time uh, we have classic motifs there of uh, Lovecraft after all beyond the infinite and so forth uh, it's great stuff um, yeah the uh, the optimistic view that uh, humanity has a friend in in space out there uh, and that it has helped us to advance that isn't the pessimism of Lovecraft, but it does, I think, preserve the Lovecraftian sense that we're not quite what we think we are, that, uh, all right, the, the uh, superhuman forces are helpful, not inimical in this, but it still dwarfs us in our significance, and those powers still remain unknown, so I think it does manage to be pretty Lovecraftian. Uh, let's see this from Gus from Phoenix, Arizona recently entered, uh, listened to an old interview with Rod Serling uh, just before he died where he discussed the series Night Gallery then in production. He lamented his well-known creative differences with producer Jack Laird and mentioned that he would much prefer to have done more classic horror tales by H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, etc. The only two Lovecraft segments that were produced for Night Gallery uh, were Cool Air, adapted by Serling, and Pickman's Model, penned by Alvin Sappensley. Both make liberal changes to the stories, usually to introduce a romantic angle of some sort. 
uh, practice. It seems to be the norm in Hollywood today. This got me thinking about the way in which Lovecraft's work very rarely includes any romantic situations. Did HPL ever discuss his reasons for this? Was the use of this type of trope less common in fiction of his day, or did he purposely avoid including such plot devices? HPL did write Sweet Ermengarde under the pseudonym Percy Simple, which is a romantic melodrama, but I understand that some think it is meant to be a satire, others not. What are your thoughts on this? Finally, if you've seen them, what are your thoughts on the Night Gallery adaptations, uh, Cool Air and Pigman's model, and the series generally? Well, Lovecraft said he stayed away from trying to depict realism and even any real character studies because he had neither the ability to do so, he thought. I suppose he was right. I don't know if he ever really tried. Uh, nor the interest in doing so because uh, he meant to use characters as merely as windows to prompt and depict the illusion of a, a temporary suspension of the the bound the bonds of natural law and the senses to give us a glimpse beyond uh, and so the the humans were kind of like a laugh track in a sitcom to signal you and to convey to you something that the uh, narrator is is experiencing um uh, nothing about the romance except negatively in the the thing on the doorstep and the um, horror at Red Hook, the marriages don't turn out too well. Uh, and uh, that's one has to wonder if he's editorializing on marriage, which didn't work out too well for him either. I assume Sweet Ermengarde is a, a parody, and uh, I don't think the guy that dealt with marriage the way he did in his stories could possibly have meant this seriously. Night Gallery as a whole, I don't much care for. I think the 80s revival of The Twilight Zone was much better. And uh, these two episodes I've seen, but uh, so long ago I hardly remember them. I tend to think that the uh, juice was squeezed out of them. They seem to be uh, laid bare in a bad sense. All the atmosphere uh, stripped away, and uh, it's... Uh, it just shows how difficult, maybe how wrong-headed it is to try to adapt these things, which are so textual in nature. Actually, actually, I liked uh, Professor Peabody's last lecture with Carl Reiner uh, better. Hmm, let's see, uh, this is from Andrew Doss. He says, as a Reformed Church Christian, I do not find a conflict between enjoying Lovecraft and my Christian beliefs. I like the idea that God's reality is actually a lot more mind-blowing and terrifying than the mere text we have in Scripture, holy though I believe that is. I think one of the biggest problems with mainstream Christian belief is that it's based more on what people want to hear and what makes them feel good, or gives them a feeling of power or whatever, and so it's easy for non-believers to poke holes in their traditions, which I welcome. Um... My question has to do with your personal arrival at non-belief as a result of your journey from fundamentalism. I've found what scripture actually says to be so different from what most people believe that it's radical enough to simply hold to the black and white teachings as we have them rather than pile layers of tradition on top of it or mold it to fit modern paradigms. As it is, plain scripture already flies in the face of so much of what uh, the Catholic Church teaches, for example. 
I find that being reformed puts me at odds with most other Christians I encounter, and I can easily see how an atheist would regard what most Christians believe as fairy tales. Given that if God exists, his reality is clearly more scary and incomprehensible than the typical mainstream Christian contemplates, what was it that drove you even further to discount all belief altogether? Did you decide at some point that since no one can really know the ultimate truth of anything, the best course of action was simply not to believe in anything at all, or was there some revelatory moment that convinced you it was all bunk? Well, there were several of those that uh, appeared gradually over the years. My, um, I guess, uh, as I relate in my book, Beyond Born Again, I, uh, around uh, my early 20s, when I was in uh, Gordon Conwell's seminary studying uh, for Masters in New Testament, I came to believe that the arguments for the authority and accuracy of the Bible just did not work, and the attempts to to apply the Bible to an alien culture, to that from which it was written, and so many centuries afterward just was such a, a game that no one could come up with any results that could be authoritative. And, I, and uh, the more I got into biblical criticism, I realized uh, the apologists like John Warwick, Montgomery, others have betrayed me and misguided me and sold me a bill of goods. Uh, at the same time, I began to realize that with all the uh, leave your problems in God's hands and just concentrate on spirituality, that this was just counterproductive. It was, it was prolonging adolescence, preventing maturity, and it just seemed like a, it made the universe into a big Skinner box. It was a shadow play that God was uh, directing, and it just seemed to me this uh, there was n nothing to be said for it. Uh, since then, I've I've found uh, so much by way of uh, destructive contradiction in the major articles of the Christian creed. I, I just find it unbelievable. In fact, a lot of it I think doesn't make any sense. Um, so that one cannot believe or disbelieve it. It's like there's not really an it there when you look closely. Um, having said that, I I uh, did go into other types of theology, liberalism and neo-orthodoxy, and oh, uh, work like that of uh, Archbishop Temple, and still believed in a kind of a overarching holiness, uh, God beyond the bounds of any textbook definition, but as I began to study deconstruction and uh, uh, similar currents of thought, I, I began to realize that idealist metaphysics uh, seemed implausible to me, too. The idea that they're unseen realities. I thought Auguste Comte was probably right that the generalities of more philosophical theology were really just cloudy, vague mythology that uh, you know you couldn't see the flaws so clearly, so it seemed more plausible, but what reason was there to believe it? And I eventually realized I was just not a theist. If I could go along with idealist metaphysics, I'd, uh, I would happily embrace the God concept of Spinoza, but I just don't see it. Uh, I'm not hostile to religion. I, I think most people know. I uh, love the study of it. It's a fascinating testament to uh, human nature, both good and bad. And uh, so um, I've come to think of it as, uh, you know, uh, a mixed bag. But uh, 
I, I like it and would uh, in many ways hate to see it vanish from the world, not that there's an, any uh, chance of that happening anytime soon. Though I wish people would stop believing in things for which there's no evidence. So I guess I love the artistry of it and so on, but not the truth claims. Martin Orwell. Uh, noted Lovecraftian Kenneth Height has suggested one may usefully view Lovecraft's works as falling into two broad categories, the pulp and the purist. The purist stories are broadly those without a happy ending in which the protagonist's struggles are proven futile. This lens has suggested an interesting way to view Lovecraft's fiction I'd love your views on. It is that a key element of Lovecraftian fiction is the illusory protagonist. The term protagonist is granted, often used merely to describe the main character. But it seems that a true protagonist is more than this. A true protagonist is an exemplar of an ideal or perspective, even if it is only the main character's own. In effect, a true protagonist confronts, explores, overcomes, and actualizes. Lovecraft's so-called protagonists do no such thing. They attempt to, yes, but their efforts only reveal the extent to which they have underestimated the odds, deluded themselves as to their real nature, overreached and misunderstood the dark reality. Could one argue that the effect of the um, could one argue that, in effect, the protagonist of Lovecraft's stories is the reader? Furthermore, that only in confronting one's own ego and accepting the implications of the narrative does the reader gain an opportunity to, to overcome his or her own delusions, if only for a moment, and is nudged toward an acceptance of cosmic indifference, as if the reader were made to take the place of Oedipus over and over again until we finally get the point. Martin, I think that is correct. Uh, about uh, Kenneth Height's view, uh, I just met him uh, at the last Lovecraft Film Festival. A great guy and uh, certainly a very uh, astute reader of Lovecraft. I, I think he's he's right. You can you can uh, sort of uh, arrange Lovecraft stories along that axis, but I think all of them are pulp fiction. And the question is. I mean, not, you know, obviously, literary, they, literally, they appeared in the pulps, but they all are trying to give you uh, thrills and so forth, though on a more philosophical basis, I guess we could say. But uh, they also are uh, dependent on a subtext of the philosophy of cosmic indifferentism, but that is the subtext. It it the, to the degree that rises to the surface and stays there. We we're more close to the purest end of the spectrum. So I agree. I have only the tiniest friendly amendment to make to that. With the uh, regards to the uh, protagonist, yeah, I think that is the reader. As I mentioned a moment ago, I think the uh, the the protagonist is a window through which the viewer sees, the reader sees what the protagonist sees, and Lovecraft is trying to convey this momentary illusion of uh, escaping the bonds of the senses and, and so on. Like he says in the Dunwich Horror that uh, the dimensions of Wilbur Waitley could not really be adequately assessed by somebody who's too used to the dimension of the three-dimensional world and so on. So he's, he knows he can't actually convey such a vision because you can't have such a vision. You are confined to the senses, but he wants to create that illusion in the reader 
So, yeah, I think that is the case. Whether he's trying to convert him to belief in indifference, that almost doesn't matter because even in Lovecraft's own case, he wasn't trying to... He, he didn't uh, get depressed and nihilistic about it, which we do kind of find in Tom Ligotti's fascinating philosophical essay, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. Uh, I think uh, for him, the awareness that uh, humanity is not central to the universe and shouldn't take up our whole perspective means that the the deck is cleared uh, for us to see what really is important, this endless vastness of the universe, which should fill us with wonder, as Kant said. And uh, so that uh, it, it isn't just horror, and insofar as it is, it's uh, the mysterium tremendum of the numinous experience that Rudolf Otto wrote about, uh, that Fritz Leiber correctly pinpointed. Lovecraft is paralleling that that uh, conception that uh, the religious experience is one of uh, revelation and ontological shock where one begins to sense the mysterium tremendum, the mystery at which we tremble, and the mysterium fascinans, the mystery that enthralls, enchants, and fascinates us. So we are drawn like the moth to the flame. That's certainly all over Lovecraft. So he wants to create that. Whether he wants to convert us to his philosophy, I don't know. I mean, his philosophy is on display. Whether it's supposed to be propaganda or not, I don't know. But I think the main thing he's doing is to induce uh, the experience of awe and wonder. Um, this is uh, from J.T. He says, um, seeing as Clark Ashton Smith's birthday was this month, January, which uh, shows how long I've had these in the slime bucket, and he was HPL's good chum in writing throughout the latter parts of Lovecraft's life, I would like to know what are your favorite Smith tales? What are your overall thoughts on his style and imaginative prose? Well, style and prose, terrific, masterful, beautiful, right up there with HPL. Uh, and my favorite stories, hard to say, but I guess I'd have to say uh, The uh, Nameless Offspring, uh, The Return of the Sorcerer, The Devotee of Evil, uh, The Hunters from Beyond, The Tale of Satampra Zeros, and uh, too many others. But those are the ones that uh, break the surface of my uh, memory. Great, great stuff. Oh, see, J.R. Patton says, It's always annoyed me that I could never recognize where the creatures called the Sand Dwellers from August Derleth's tale The Gable Window originated. Like most of Derleth's so-called mythos tales, The Gable Window has a mythos menagerie of creatures that he borrowed from stories by Lovecraft and his circle, and it has an appearance of a Sand Dweller treating it as if it had appeared before in other stories like the other creatures. Features. Where does it fit in? My own theory is that since physically it matches almost exactly the desert-dwelling monsters in Anthony Boucher's, or is it Boucher, I don't even know, 1940s weird horror spy tale, They Bite. I think it was a half-hearted attempt by Derleth to adopt this wonderful little tale as part of the Cthulhu mythos. I think you're probably right, though I've never read that story. I'd like to now. I think you, you're probably correct. But here is a far-fetched alternative. It's conceivable he had in mind the crocodile guys in the nameless city, which, after all, is uh, set under the sands of the of the uh, 
Arabian Desert. Again, you're probably right, but that's another possibility. Uh, another one from J.R. He says, As a scholar of biblical proportions, have you found passages or descriptions of creatures in the Bible that you would judge to be overtly Lovecraftian in nature? Well, I'd say Leviathan, the seven-headed dragon mentioned in Job, uh, Isaiah, and the Psalms, uh, would come pretty close. He rises from the abyss. He's the same as Lotan, the Canaanite uh, chaos dragon. Uh, that's pretty close to Cthulhu, and um, I uh, identify the two in a forthcoming story called The Seven Thunders, which I think you'll probably enjoy. Okay, this from John. It says, have you been watching the HBO series True Detective? Four episodes in, so far it appears to be a dark, gritty, realistic murder mystery. Once again, this has lingered too long, thanks to me, in the slime bucket. Obviously, time has passed and the thing is over, so this isn't going to be all that much news, but let's have a good comment about the show anyway. What's interesting, and what I suspect most mainstream views haven't, viewers haven't noticed, is that there are a lot of references to weird fiction of the late 19th and early 20th century, including, but not limited to the old gent drug-addled and therefore possibly unreliable witnesses have described Cthulhu-like beings and strange isolated death cults to the two lead investigators played by Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey. At least one character appears to have gone insane after witnessing some unknown horror. My, my guess is he had seen one of McConaughey's previous films. Anyway, uh, most prominent to those familiar with weird fiction... Um, are many, many references to the King in Yellow. Do they actually mention Joe Pulver in the uh, program? Anyway, even the title True Detective strikes me as a nod to the pulp publications of the era. It's clearly, after all, 100% fiction and not based on a true story. Though what we've actually seen on screen hasn't yet delved into the supernatural, some viewers have theorized a mythos-like twist into Lovecraftian territory before the end of the ten-episode run. Well... I guess viewers know by now whether that happened or not. And again, I don't want to make John look bad by saying, hey, tell us something we don't know because this was early in the game, right? It's my fault and I don't want to leave out his question. I'm sorry I didn't get to it before now. But I must admit, I have never seen this show. What was it, HBO? I don't get that. Uh, I have ordered uh, the uh, the DVD of the series, not gotten it yet. Uh, has it come out yet? I don't even know. Uh, but uh, I look forward to seeing it at some point. And it uh, does sound good, though I must admit I find all this uh, debating over whether the writers plagiarized and not merely used weird fiction to be a little distasteful, but I'm sure that won't really mar the experience. I hope you're watching... Um, the Strain, now, on FX, based on Guillermo del Toro and uh, Charles Hogan, is it? Uh, their trilogy, which I, I want to read. I like the, the thing so much I can tell the text must be uh, pretty pretty interesting. So that's it. Happy birthday uh, uh, for H.P. Lovecraft, and please send me some more Lovecraftian questions, because that's the bottom of the slime bucket. We've scraped the bottom. Uh, so I'll see you once I do get some more. And again, happy birthday, Cthulhu. Happy birthday, Cthulhu. Happy birthday, Cthulhu. Happy birthday, Cthulhu.
Good evening, friends. The Lovecraft Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix. Catch up with Mike Davis and Mythos communities everywhere by devouring the free online Lovecraft e-zine at lovecraftzine.com for events, news, and information. To catch up with Dr. Price's projects, purchase merchandise, and donate to help support Dr. Price and his family, please visit robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Thanks for listening to The Lovecraft Geek. I'm Torin Atkinson. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.